Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we featured a conversation between National Book Award finalist David Troyer and AWM program director Allison Sansoni. This week, Allison talks to award-winning poet Saeed Jones about his memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, which tells his incredible story of a young black man from the South fighting to carve out a place for himself in the world. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. Tonight, we're here to welcome a writer who, according to all reports, already shut the city down last night at the Chicago Ideas Festival, who rules Twitter with an iron fist in a sequined glove, and whose prose, in the words of the New York Times, reads like fevered poetry. Saeed Jones' memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, started showing up in AWM's inboxes last year with notes like, you have to read this, this is the book we need right now, this is the best thing I've ever read, if you don't get him here, I will burn the place to the ground. So thank you for being here. (laughs) Nevertheless, we have the fire department on standby. His memoir explores what it means to be young and black and gay and creative in an America that's hostile to all those things at once. And through stories of writing his way into the world, he tells us all what it's mean to be, what it means to be human. His debut, Prelude to Bruise, won the 2015 Penn Joyce Osterweil Award for Poetry and the 2015 Stonewall Book Award, Barbara Guidings, sorry, Giddings Literature Award. The Poetry Collection was also a finalist for the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award, as well as awards from Lambda Literary and the Publishing Triangle in 2015. Welcome, Saeed. Hi. Thank you, Allison. Um, and, you know, thank you ever threatened to burn down the... I was going to come. I, you know, Chicago is, is a pretty reliable stop on most book tours, but, you know, hey... I see you. Uh, this is a delight. I, I, Allison Thanks gave me, for being here. Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you for being here. You know, like your time is so valuable. There's so many things you could be doing in the midst of our ongoing constitutional crisis. You know, like I'm like, I think I should be reading about Syria right now. I don't know, my nigga. Like, what's going on? Um, so here we are. Uh, so I will try to earn your time. Um, but also, I just... You know, Allison, thank you for giving me a tour of this. Like, this is really special um, and and thoughtfully created. So, thank you. You know, and yeah, Chicago has a vital um, literary history. So, it's nice to see this here. Oh, thank you. Yeah. We like to think so. Uh, rightfully so. <laughs> rightfully so. You wanted to, you were going to open yeah. with um, the uh, a passage from the book mm-hmm. that talks about you know some of what we're going to discuss yeah. here tonight. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I'll read that, and then we're going to talk, and then I'll read the poem that kind of opens the book and then you know if you have questions i hope you do i love to answer them um and it's all good um so um this chapter is uh the end of the third act of the book uh spoilers there are fights in this book called how we fight for our lives um uh and all you need to know is i'm a, a senior in college at this point um i go to a new year's eve party in phoenix arizona where asu is uh to visit some friends i went to school in western kentucky university um 
I had dreadlocks at the time, uh, which were pretty long, so that figures into the, the, the writing. Um, and the one other thing you need to know is that just the, the dynamics of what you were talking about, the peril um, that we were all aware of in different ways of, of America saying your identity will never be welcomed here, will never be enough here, um, have basically metastasized at this point. So I'm deeply depressed and angry about it and uh, ready to burn down the house. Uh, so I'll read that to start. It's a, it's a great mood, Bender. Uh, oh, I'd love someone who follows along in the book. Uh, 125. 125. I, cut, I skip a couple of paragraphs, but we'll get through it together. Yeah, chapter 15. December 31st, 2007, Phoenix, Arizona. A joke I used to repeat in those days was, why be happy when you can be interesting? I knew how to be interesting. There was power in being a spectacle, even a miserable spectacle. The punch and the line. Interesting. Sentences like serrated blades, laughter like machine gun rounds, a drink in one hand, a borrowed cigarette in the other. If you could draw enough glances, any room could orbit around you. That New Year's Eve, I wound up at a party that was exactly like every party I had ever been to. An iPod hooked up to a pair of speakers, an awkward costume theme I tried and failed to adhere to, and an apartment clogged with white people. The only difference was that I was getting wasted in Phoenix, Arizona, instead of Bowling Green, Kentucky. And in the few days I'd been there, I had concluded that Arizona was perhaps the whitest place I had ever visited. It was like stepping onto the surface of a very well-lit moon. The party's theme was the future, which is why more than half the people in attendance were wearing some combination of synthetic fabric and aluminum foil and sunglasses. I hadn't known that there would be a theme, and the only other shirt I packed was a blue calico button-down, so I put my dreadlocks into two big tails and kept telling everyone I was Dorothy. No one found this in any way strange because, of course, this was the future, and all bets are off in the year 2075. For the first few hours of the party, either I didn't notice him, or the man who would later try to kill me simply had not arrived yet. All night, I was a terrific, bright black mess. I stomped, slinked, sauntered in and out of the kitchen to refill my cup or do shots. I shouted orders about songs that should be added to the party's playlist. Out on the porch, smoking cigarettes, then passing around a blunt, I stared at an orange tree just out of reach until I finally plucked off a fruit. It seemed miraculous. Oranges in the dead of winter. Then I realized the unseen side of the fruit was rotted, ants pouring out of the ruin like ink. Looking back, I can see how someone might see me that night and argue that I had it coming, that I had a man like him coming. If that someone was America herself, I can understand how she might rattle off a warning. That black boy has been too hungry for too long. One of these nights, he's going to bite off more than he can chew. I will say for myself, America, I did the best I could with what I was given. 
The man, let's call him Daniel, looked familiar when I saw him from across the room, as if each part of him had been borrowed from some other boy or man I had wanted. Leaning against the wall, dispassionately sipping a beer, he was the kind of quiet I have noticed in certain men and long hungered for. The silence of men who have it all and thus find it all boring. Who don't exert the energy necessary to flirt, persuade, or convince because they know America will come crawling to them on hands and knees I realize now that what I wanted was not just the bodies of such men, but their power and what they could use that power to do to the rest of us. The brutal exertion of will, destiny made manifest by the unspoken threat their muscled bodies and white skin posed. I hungered for the power of the all-American man the Marlboro man and the Marlboro man's firstborn son, the high school quarterback, the company's future CEO, Ernest Hemingway, John Wayne, Odysseus, Hercules, Achilles, the shield itself, the stone-cut archetype, the goddamn every man, the golden boy, the one. If I could not actually be the one myself, I thought I could survive by devouring him whole. The more straight, the more masculine, the more I wanted to see him with his legs spread or up, back arched in an orgasm that did not just bring him pleasure, but a warning. In spite of the man you say you are, in the future I live in, men like me are coming to conquer you, and we will take no prisoners. This is what I thought it meant to be a man fighting for his life. If America was going to hate me for being black and gay, then I might as well make a weapon out of myself. Thank you. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for that. So... One of the things that I wanted to ask you first Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, how you became a writer. Mm. So your your journey towards writing, what drew you to writing initially, and who were some of the writers along the way who you found to um, to sustain you during that time? Mm. Um, I became a writer because I was a passionate reader. I really think writing, I mean, you know, like if, you know, like you read books casually and we all do, there's some books we just like read and you just like get through it, you know? And then there's books you, you underline, you highlight. There are books you talk to other, you're like, you've got to look, look at this. Let me text you a line from, you know what I mean? And, and then, you know, you're writing in the margins. And then, so to me, writing cultural criticism, book reviews is, that is where it all begins. The, the passionate reading at some point becomes, you know what? This is so lit. Let me sit down and actually do my own thing. You know, how could you not read Gwendolyn Brooks, right? How could you not read Toni Morrison and be like, let me go, like, have my own party, you know? And so that's where writing started with for, with me, but my own party. Um, and then, you know, women, uh, all of my memories of the books that made their way to me, you know, in middle school, in high school, in college, it, it was really, before I was formally studying writing, it was women. Um, my mom, who, you know, she was a single parent. She studied college for a couple of semesters, but couldn't afford it. Um, and but she kept all of her books. 
you know, so um, in the first chapter, you see me pick up a copy, her copy of James uh, Baldwin's Another Country. Um, and that was because her copy of The Color Purple, I was like, a woman's talking about her pussy. No. Uh, and, and I tried to read Toni Morrison, who, you know, has since then become just hugely important to me, but I was not, I did not have the range. Ooh, my public school education in Louisville, Texas had not prepared me for like circular plot <laughs> and all of these things. So I was like, no, 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 no. But I picked up another country, um, and you see it and I just sit down on the floor in my living room. And so, you know, that was an inheritance from my mother and in school, you know, I did speech and debate. And so, you know, my speech coach was really good. And so she'd be like, here's this book by Elin Harris. I think you should read it, you know, um, because she didn't want to say like, yeah, you gay and he gay, read it. Uh, you know, she was trying to be very polite, but, but again, you know, I, I remember reading and opening the book and I think the first sentence of his memoir or something, um, how, what becomes of the broken heart is his memoir. And he's like, I'm a black gay man. I was like, ah, you know, so those kinds of moments. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, as, as I kept reading and, and starting writing, studying writing formally, um, Tiari Jones, who I know has been here, you know, the first chapter of the book I wrote in graduate school in her class. Um, you know, and she was like, oh, this is okay. She was like, talk about, you know, the experience, not just like use the book to get to the photograph. That's very important to the plot. Um, but she was like, no, talk about the experience of being a reader. That's great. You know, um, so those kinds of experiences and, you know, Ricoberto Gonzalez, who was um, my first gay instructor, who was a man of color. He's uh, he was uh, grew up in Mexico and then in California. And like that was important. And he has a wonderful memoir, Butterfly Boy. Um, that's about his relationship with his father and his brothers and, and just seeing people, Maya Angelou, you know, just seeing people um, tell the truth about themselves um, and I think the memoir form has always been something I really gravitated toward um, because, um, I don't know, I, I think maybe because it's easier to produce a book, obviously, than a movie or a TV show. Um, books, there's a lot of radical work in books that if you're fortunate enough, you can kind of stumble into. And, you know, now we have Pose and, and we have these, you know, Moonlight and, and Lena Waithe and Janet Mock and, and, you know, all these people are, are you know, and um, Sarah Broom and Dee Rees, her partner, you know, are, are making these, these films. But books have had a lot of this um, outsider storytelling for quite some time. And I was lucky enough to really stumble into it. Um, and, and, and you see immediately, as soon as I'm reading um, another country, I go and hide in my room because I think I'll get in trouble if my room, my mom sees it. <laughs> it's the, you know, there, there was someone who, who once said, you know, you, that if, if you really want to get to know someone, have them text you a picture of their bookshelves. Ooh, true. And that's, yes, True. because when you tell people about the books that you love, you're mm -hmm. telling them about what you love and mm -hmm. what's important to you. Yeah. The thing is, you know, people say like being gay is a choice and I'm like, not so because men are trash. <laughs> and yet, uh, and I got to tell you how many dudes don't even have bookcases in their houses at all to say anything of good books, but I, <laughs> oh my God, it's just all like a column of like, you know, um, startup companies for dummies, like those yellow... <laughs> Great, whatever, but they find though. Um, yeah, but no, I, I think it's actually one of the joy. In a friend point, I just moved to Columbus, Ohio, and so I was like setting up, and a friend was with me helping me <laughs> all these books, and he was like, you know, this is awesome. I'm getting to know you. 
He was like, this is such a cool way. Because he was like, you know, people don't have, like, um, typically, like, record players and the album collection. You know, all of these things that used to be conversation starters and a way to literally surround yourself with the story of your loves and your passions. But books are a way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you worked in you worked in poetry, and now you're you're moving into memoir. Mm-hmm. How has your writing process changed over time, and in moving from one form to another? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still I'm a master compartmentalizer, and you see in the book it really comes from like just identity politics and me being like, what you know I think if like if we're all a pie. And in our identity, it's like, you know, you're, you grew up with like this class politics and your family and religion and identity and race and da, 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 health, whatever. And often I think we're like, how many pieces of the pie can I bring into this space? You know, that really impacted me growing up. So I'm really good at compartmentalizing and being like, you know, forget prose for a second. It's all about poetry. Um, but that said, yeah, I mean, I think. I write poems like a sociopath. Um, I I write one line. Usually poems start with like an image or usually the title or the first sentence. So just imagine it. Like this phrase that's in your head and it's like kind of annoying you because you can't stop thinking about it until you go home and write. So I write the first line and then I try to write the second line. Like particularly like listening to music or playing an instrument. And then it's like, eh, you mess up. And I draw a dash and I write the first line again. And I write the second line again. I'm like, and we get to the third line, eh, draw a dash, and I start. That's how. So I'm revising as I'm going, which is to say I don't know where my poems are going to end up. Um, if you read my poetry, it tends to be pretty suspenseful generally because it's like I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen to Boy at the, at the end of one of the poems in Prelude to Bruise. Um, you can't write a memoir like that. I tried. I would write the first paragraph of a chapter or even the first chapter of the book and stop and start over and I was like well I'm literally never going to finish this book so I think I had to learn to chill out a bit um, and to trust that I would get an opportunity later to go back you know that it wasn't the worst thing if if the chapter or even the page wasn't perfect that day I could figure it out um, and so you it's, it's kind of like being kinder to yourself I'm not very kind to myself as a poet I don't think it's about being nice to myself. I think it's about being perfect. Um, but like with writing a book, you just have to be more generous because it's a marathon. And I think poems are a sprint. So a lot of memoirs, um, you know, you read them and they're they're distancing. You can mm. tell that the writer is, you know, making sense of something by putting it away from themselves mm. and curating it and saying, look, observe how this happened to me. Mm. And you don't do that. This, this book feels very intimate and you feel very close to everything that's still happening. Mm-hmm. Was that a conscious choice on your part? And how did you bring that across that intimacy with that story? Uh, was it a, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I was like, are most memoirs like that? That sounds terrible. Um, I don't know. I don't think it was a conscious choice. I think, you know, um, having worked in media, uh, and, and just watching it, I obsess over it and I upset like the New York Times drives me crazy, as it does many people. And one of the reasons the New York Times drives me crazy is because they're like, we're the paper of record and we don't make mistakes. Right? Like that's that's the, the culture of their work. And of course, it's made by humans. I think the New York Times does a lot of great work, but of course you're gonna make mistakes. And and so knowing that, I've just developed this ethos of like, I think it's better to admit we make mistakes. And I think it's better if someone asks you a question you can't answer and you say, actually, I don't know. 
And I think that moment, and I, we've all had this, right, with bosses or professors who you ask them, and they go, I don't know, I'll figure it out. And you're like, huh, you know, because one, what a moment of trust, what a moment of humanity and compassion. They have decided to honor your humanity instead of continuing to perform their superiority. Um, so they've earned a lot of trust from you. But also that means when they speak confidently, you believe them. You, you trust them more. And so I think with the memoir, I wanted to enact that ethos. You know, a memoir is a product of memory, right? Our memories are incredibly unreliable. There is so much science, and you don't need the science, just anecdotally. What happened yesterday? I don't know. Try to recount a, a conversation. You know, I, I, I do countless interviews, and I'm surprised by how often I say like, or um, or you know. I don't remember that, because that information isn't technically important to my memory, but it happened, and it's true, you know. So I wanted to write a memoir that recognized this, and recognized that memory and its unreliability is a part of identity formation. The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are how we become who we are. And so I wanted to embrace all of that um, instead of running from it. Because I just, I don't know, I just think that's what a good memoir should do. Were there times that you found yourself too close to something to tell it? Did you, mm. were there times when you had to back away? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um... Initially, the book was going to be a little bit more narrow because I am young. Uh, I'm 33. I sold the book in 2015. And, and now that the book is out, I'm like, thank God, y'all can just read it and actually realize I am a bad bitch. Um, but that whole time period, I was just surrounded by people going like, aren't you a little young to be writing a memoir? Aren't you a little young to be, you know, so I was like, I get it. I know, you know. Um, so initially, I was trying to be very conservative and, and limit it to 1998 to 2008 and what you, you know, you, you're almost at the end at that point. Um, but my mom is a huge part of the story and my mom passed away. She had a heart attack the night before Mother's Day in 2011. And I, I've talked about this experience and pretty public on Twitter and people know it. And so my editor was like, it'll be weird. Like readers might feel jilted actually if they get to the end of the book and she's a part of it from the very beginning and then her story is cut off. She's fighting for her life too, you know, so I had to expand it. Um, so I knew that, but I still had, you know, I was still working on, I don't know, a college section or something at the time. And uh, basically it was time, I was just, I was writing. I was in my apartment in Harlem at the time and writing and I finished one chapter and I didn't want to stop um, that day, you know, and I realized that the logical next chapter would be when I got the phone call on the night before Mother's Day. And I burst into tears. And, like, I'm not an emotional writer. I don't think of it as catharsis. I think of it as craft work, you know. But I, I just hadn't prepared myself. It wasn't like I, like, you know, like the weeks coming up, like, okay, let's build, you know, have you have you thought about the traps and all? I, I hadn't at all. And so I remember um, Solange's A Seat at the Table album had just come out, like, that Friday. And I think this was Saturday. And I, I tend to play songs on um, repeat while I'm writing so that the words just cease to be words. And it was cranes on the sky. So it's just cranes in the sky. It's like playing over and over. And I'm just sobbing <laughs> in front of my computer because I, I, I was overwhelmed. That was, um, you know, a relatively recent experience. And grief is traumatic. But unlike other types of trauma, grief really is not linear. 
I guess no trauma is, but I think grief is like really wild. And so, you know, I, I'm fine. I'm, you know, I'm okay, you know, but, uh, who's to say that if I walk through the audience and one of you had on a perfume that my mom liked that I, you know, and smell is a powerful sense that I might not be totally thrown, you know, it just doesn't obey the same rules. And, um, and so the focus, the kind of line by line, paragraph by paragraph discipline I have was, was upended and uh, a friend had to come get me and we just went and drank. All night, drink all night, uh, Fair. all night. Fair, yeah, right. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes I'm not one of those writers who like alcohol helps the writing. No, alcohol helps the living, but uh, it doesn't help. It doesn't make the writing. I can't like if I have two glasses of wine, I can't write anything. But yeah, it, it helped me calm down. And we talked, and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to survive this book. I remember saying that to him, like this is just a tall order, and oh my goodness. Um, and then next weekend after work, I sat down and I got back to work. Well, you're excavating so many things yeah. that you, you know, that you, you think you've dealt with, right. but then, oh, wait a minute, no, I haven't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's interesting that your editor would say, you know, that you need to consider how the readers are going to feel mm-hmm. about how your mother's story ends. Right, yeah. And very so, smart and very compassionate. Very smart and very compassionate. But when you say it like that, you're mm-hmm. like, are you kidding me? Like, this is, <laughs> you know, this is my, this is the way the story goes, right? I, oh, well, so know, where's yeah. that line between, mm-hmm. you know, are you communicating to readers? Are you communicating to yourself? Mm-hmm. Are you communicating to yourself as a young man? Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Um, you know... At that point, we were several years into working on the book. Um, I was lucky enough that when I sold the book on, when I took the book out on proposal, so I had like a hundred pages or seventy-five, and you know my bite, like that kind of the thing you read, QQQ'd, and you know he's got a lot of followers on Twitter, and publishers are like, ooh, you know, oh my gosh, uh, what is Twitter? That's exciting. Um, so um, eight different publishers ended up wanting to bid on the book. So I, I got to meet all of these really generally, well, some of them were terrible, but like six of them were really smart and wonderful people. Um, and I got... Tell me which two. Oh, I, yeah, I'll spill the Kiki girl later. One of, them, one of them said something so sexist, I was stunned. And it wasn't the editor, it was the salesperson. I'll tell you, we'll talk, we can talk about it. Um, I, you know, I'm all about transparency. I don't, I don't want to uh, perpetuate toxic, toxicity by pretending everything's cool. You know, um, but anyway, I, I got to meet a lot of smart people, generally speaking, and then I settled on this editor. And what a joke! You know, he's like a straight, white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired dude from Connecticut, um, but he's just really great. Uh, and I was like, "Huh, wouldn't have expected you were the person," but he was. And we had such a great relationship that I, I just feel that by the time he was ready, and I remember how nervous he was. He was like, "Can we meet for drinks to talk?" And usually we would meet to eat, you know, because we're not like, totally alcoholics; we're just like casually. Um, <laughs> And I was like, okay. And I just remember he, like, he was like, you know, tapping and fidgeting. And it was because he was about to ask, which is such a high order of a person, can you write about your mother's death? Do you want to sit up with somebody and ask them to do that? I wouldn't, you know. But uh, we had such trust. And I, I understood what he was trying to say. And honestly, Alison, as he was saying it, you know, this happens sometimes. You've been thinking maybe through something, and then someone finally echoes the truth back to you, and they've, they're going through all that, and you're like, I got you. I get it. You know, that's what it felt like. And, and I'm so grateful. The truth is that as much as this book is um, about me and what I'm going through, my relationship with my mother is, is the soul, is the organizing principle of the book. 
every like even that like at this party where i'm like uh 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 you know and, and she's not a part of it um and i'll read a poem later that i think kind of colors that relationship a bit for you if you haven't read the book yet but you know even when she's not there what's happening is about the contrast it's about the fact that she is so um distanced by me from that part of my life and and what does it mean when we decide uh for whatever reasons, like my mom and I in this case had a great relationship but weren't great about talking about me being gay. What does it mean when you love someone very much but you decide to hold that part of yourself away from them? And you're still a young person coming of age and America's terrifying. Indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter, right? And you're trying to figure all that out on your own but here you are cut off from the wisest, most loving people you know. So, you know, inviting the full story of my relationship with my mother into the book, I think, honestly, made everything else make more sense. Yeah. So the reception that the book has gotten has been tremendous. It's you know, the reviews, great. yeah, the reviews are, you know, the reviews are raves. The, you know, people can't get enough of it. Has there been any, have there been any reactions that you weren't expecting? Um, I try not to expect too much. Um, because that's how you set yourself up for a disappointment or not listening to what people are saying. You know, when you, when we like set up a whole scene of a conversation before you show up to the dinner or whatever, like whatever people are saying is having to like get through the beautiful scene you've written in your imagination, you know? Um, I, I, I was lucky enough that when galleys went out this summer to people like you, to booksellers and librarians, um, I was starting to get like little bits of feedback and it, I was noticing the range, the diversity of readers that were connecting to the book and that was great. I would have been fine if only black queer people were resonating with the book. That's dope. You know, fuck y'all. You know, I'm just here for my people. Um, but it was cool too for people to be like, oh, I'm a mom. You know, or, you know, I just, I, I'm going through this. I'm totally different, but I'm going through this too, you know. So that's great. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> when, when, when you've dealt with all these people being like, aren't you a little young <laughs> to be writing a memoir? And then you wake up one morning, as I did like a week ago, and I'm in my hotel room on my book tour, which is already surreal. And there's the New Yorker comparing my writing to John Milton's Paradise Lost. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> oh my goodness. In the best way. Wow, yeah. I mean, if, if the story is this, the, my anxiety about like, will I ever be fully welcomed? Will my whole self ever be welcomed to say nothing of being honored by America? And to have the New Yorker or the New York Times or, or NPR like being like, yeah, we will. Like, this is cool. Yes, of course, that's great. Um, but that has nothing to do with the reality of the book. You know, and then I try to remember that too. Like, it's, so you're always like kind of dancing. You know, I, I'm not going to pretend that praise, that critical reception isn't something I value. Duh. You know, we remember everyone in here got here because of other people saying their names. Right. Um, but the work, you know, at the end of the day, I, I would like to believe that when Gwendolyn Brooks, you know, sat sat down on her couch after, you know, writing a poem, she had already kind of completed the circle for herself. Uh, and that's what I try to do. I try to remember, like, have you completed the circle for yourself? And when I finished the book and took a few months before I read it again, you know, and got the galley and read it, I was like, I completed my circle. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, 
people say that when you you write that every book teaches you how to write the next one. Mm, so what did you learn about what did you learn about writing from writing this book? Mm, wow. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of humor. You know. There's. I mean, it's quick. <laughs> You know, it's like, you better laugh now before the next, like, kind of fist comes at you. But, yeah, like, making space for humor that, that you can write, you know, artistic um, and, and of literary merit and invite more colors of yourself into the book. Um, I think I'm getting, I'm a pretty bold writer, um, and I'm fine writing about myself. I'll just, like, lay it all out. You know what I mean? In that, that chapter in particular, it's really, like, Saeed's messiness on full display. You know? It's like, you know, it's like a sentient worm of gay Twitter or something. Just like, disaster! You know? Um, and so that was wild. But the real challenge of the book was writing about family members. My mom is not alive. She cannot advocate for herself. Right, she can't sit there and say, "Excuse me, hi, I have a question." You know, my grandmother and I, our relationship is very complicated, and you see us at our worst together when I'm younger in the book. And um, she knew I was writing the book in grad school when my mom called her to tell her I was writing a memoir, and I was like, "What'd she say?" She just said, "Uh oh." <laughs> and then I sent her the galley this summer, and she, uh, particularly about this, she was like, "Here's what she was like: the middle is raunchy." And I was like, yes, oh, put it on the jacket. Well, she was like, I don't know how to say it, but it's kind of raunchy. Like she, there was a whimsy. It wasn't like a judgment raunchy. I was like, I'll, I'll pick it up what you're putting down, Mildred. Um, <laughs> and she was like, the way you write about your mom at the end is very beautiful. And I started crying. Um, and then I was like, okay, but what about the beginning? Because that's when things are really rough. And she just said it brought back a lot of memories. Um, so I think what this book has empowered me to do, and so that's like huge trust, right? She's not trying to reframe. She's not doing PR. She's not like fake news site, you know? She's just like brought back a lot of memories. It is what it is. Um, I think I've learned that it's possible for me to write about other people with deep compassion and nuance. And I usually have avoided doing that because, you know, I just like create characters because I was just like so afraid of, of being inhumane. And it's totally possible. It's totally possible to tell a good story, a good yarn that is just mean and virulent. And I just didn't want to do that. So I think if my grandma can read the book and be like, you captured it, um, then that feels like something that empowers me to take more risks moving forward. Yeah. So what is the next project? I don't know. I don't know. Um, in part because things are so loud right now. You know, it's, it's really hard to think when people are praising you. As it turns out, I don't know. I mean, maybe y'all can think. Uh, I can't. I'm just like, I, I, I just find, I don't know. I just, I feel like blasted by praise. And part of it is I'm not really great at accepting compliments. It's taken a lot of work. I'm better. This is a vast improvement. Um, I used to like immediately start apologizing when someone would compliment. I used to immediately start pointing out all the things that, you know, and my, my aunt said, Sight, you're disrespecting them. You know, someone walks up to you and says, I really love, you know, Prelude to Bruise. And you go, well, it's not that good. Da, da, da. You're disrespecting what they've offered you. And so she just said, you know, if someone gives you a compliment you don't feel you're ready to receive, just say thank you and make a vow to someday get there. Um, so, you know, right now that's kind of where I am. Just like, thank you. Uh, and then be like, New York Times, New York, da, 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 you know, and, and not trying to make decisions based on it. I don't want to write anything based on the praise. You know, I want to let the praise uh, go to my agent and the publisher and Hollywood and whoever, the people who make decisions that empower me to have capital to continue to make art. 
right? But when it comes to when I sit down to actually write, um, all I want to do is keep fighting for my life. That's all. That's the only kind of thing I'm interested in terms of my work. So I know I need to wait. Um, but I've started writing poems again. Some people are apparently excited about that. Um, there's someone said, someone's like, sorry, you're like the Frank Ocean of poetry. I don't know when it's going to come. You're just going to drop it. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> um, so if I ever dye my hair, that's how you know. Um, so that, and, and I've tried to start writing fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think it'll be a while before I write another memoir. I hope. I, it takes a while before I have material for another memoir, first of all. But um, also, it's just such a difficult, rigorous form because it's not just enough to write a beautiful page, right? You can write something that's beautiful that is factually inaccurate, right? Like uh, uh, what James Frey's memoir is it's actually a beautiful book. It's inaccurate. It's not true. You can write something that's factually accurate and beautiful, but it's emotionally false, you're lying to yourself, you know? And so it, it was just like, just like, it was so many deleting beautiful, well, I would copy and paste them and be like, well, maybe that can go in a poem one day, honestly. But like, you know, enough of like, it's great, but it's not what we're here to do. Um, and so it felt like running like the triathlon where you're like, we're done running. I'm so tired. And it was like, now it's time to swim, nigga. Um, so I'm excited to like write poetry or fiction that's a little less rigorous. You mentioned at the, the very beginning of this conversation mm -hmm. that, you know, there's a lot of radical work that took place in books and it feels like we're in a, we're in a great place in literature in terms of people being able, people being asked to tell their own stories mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in their own voices. And I'm wondering who some of the writers are that are, that are working now that really excite you and interest you and you want to see what they do next. Ooh, I love this part. Um, well, I'm reading, I left it at home because because it's a book that I'm highlighting and writing in, and I was terrified that I would lose it on the road. Um, but Gia Tolentino's book, Trick Mirror, it's a it's bit memoir. Of course, she writes for The New Yorker. She's quite one. If you want your introduction to Gia, uh, read her uh, piece on Robin's song, Honey. It's just really beautiful. Um, but so the book is, it's it's part memoir. It's like essays, um, but cultural criticism. And it, it, it connects, I think, identity and being a woman of color in this world um, with technology. And so the first chapter of the book is, is called The Internet and I, and I mean, it will knock you flat. Like, it's just like, she explains it. She explains why we love social media, you know, and the internet so much in the way we do when we know it's a mess and it often makes us unhappy in real time. But why are we still with it, you know? And she notes that even if you're not on Twitter or Facebook, you know, these tech platforms are shaping our identities. Wow. So that's great. Um, Dinesh Smith is, of course, wonderful. And I, I just, I feel they are just really prolific. Actually, I feel like Dinesh has published like three poetry collections since I you know, was working on this one book. Um, and Morgan Parker, I think, is incredible. She has a YA book out right now. And um, her last poetry collection came out in the last fall called Magical Negro. She's someone, the reason I draw attention to her, she's doing something I would like to do one day which is I feel she really is actually able to capture her full self, the humor, the da-da-da-da-da, ha-ha, the brilliant Columbia-educated intellect on the page all at once. And I still, like, you get, like, a little of the humor and da-da-da-da, but I'm, I'm still, like, iterate. I'm still buffering on the page. So I really admire that to read her work is to have um, a more full, sense, more full sense of who she is.
Yeah. We always ask that because I've noticed people oftentimes, if they don't want to talk about themselves, always love to talk about oh, their talented so friends. Oh, so much easier. We could, I could have literally done like a whole interview about Gia Tolentino. That'd be great. Yeah, she's great. She's great. So I wanted to ask um, if we could, um, you mentioned a poem that sure. you wanted to read, and then we can take a few questions. Right on. Um, so yeah, this is just how the book opens. Um, everyone here looks grown, so I don't have to explain who Prince is. That's a relief. I was teaching once and I mentioned Alanis Morissette and I just looked up at a classroom of kids looking at me like, who the fuck are you talking about? And I, it hurt my feelings. Okay. And then I found out they were trolling me, actually. They oh, totally they knew. Me. Okay, good. Kids are jerks. Okay. <laughs> Elegy with grown folks music. I want to be your lover comes on the kitchen radio. And briefly, your mother isn't your mother. Just like if the falsetto is just right, a black man in black lace panties isn't a faggot, but a prince, a prodigy. And the woman with your hometown between her hips shimmies past the eviction notice burning on the counter and her body moves like she never even birthed you. The voice on the radio pleads, I want to be the only one that makes you come running. Some songs take women places men cannot follow spinning she looks at but doesn't see you spinning she sings lyrics too fast for you to pursue spinning she doesn't have time for questions like what is this nasty song and where did she learn to dance like that and why and who is this high-pitched bitch of a man who can sing like a woman and turn your mother not into your mother but a woman not even a woman but a box-braided black girl, a fast girl, a chick, a vanity six, and how far away she is from you, right here in the same living room, dancing with the song's hook in her throat. And you hate the voice coming through the radio because another sissy has snatched your dreams and run off with them, and because you are young and don't know the difference between abandoned and alone, just like your mother's heart won't know the difference between beat and attack. She will be dead in a decade. And maybe you already know what you are losing without knowing how. But you're just a boy for now. And your mother is just a woman, just a girl. Body swaying, fingers snapping, and snakes in her blood. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week for a conversation with writer and disabled rights advocate Kia Brown about her essay collection, The Pretty One. Now go, be inspired, and find the might of a writer in yourself.